Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here, as usual. Let's begin today by reminding you that if you're listening to this on the day it came out, we are at the Chortle Comedy Book Festival this weekend, uh, Sunday, January 19th, at the British Library doing Book Shambles live with Robin and Josie and a special guest. And the following weekend, we will be in Bristol at the Slapstick Comedy Festival doing uh, a Book Shambles Live with uh, Joe Neary and Sophie Ratcliffe, all about uh, PG Woodhouse. And we're doing lots of other events there as well, uh, celebrating Laurel and Hardy with Robin and Stephen Merchant. We'll have an evening with the goodies that Robin is chairing with all three of the goodies there. Uh, We're doing uh, Book Shambles about the... Uh, slapstick classics with uh, Natalie Haynes. See what we did there. Uh, tickets for all of those events are at the Slapstick website, the Slapstick Comedy website, and uh, Slapstick Festival, Slapstick Festival website, which is slapstick.org.uk, I believe. It might not be, but you can just Google Slapstick Festival and find out uh, what that link is. Uh, and the book shambles at the British Library. Uh, just go to the British Library or the Chortle website and you'll get the tickets for those, obviously on cosmicshambles.com as well. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles, where you can go to support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network, including uh, including our blog network. Uh, and coming to the blog network this year, Robin is going to be doing uh, reviews of secondhand bookshops that he comes across on his travels, which is many, 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 many secondhand bookshops are up at the moment. He's just come back from Toronto doing Generator with Chris Hadfield and co. Uh, so there's a new post up there about the secondhand bookshops of Toronto and the treasures he found there. So check that out on CosmicShambles.com. Don't forget Sea Shambles coming up this year, May 17, at the Royal Albert Hall with Robin and Josie and Helen Chersky and Steve Bakshall and British Sea Power and Lem Say and lots of other people as well. Tickets from the Royal Albert Hall website for that. Now, uh, this week's episode, our guest is the activist and author and journalist Joan Smith. Uh, primarily, uh, Robin and uh, Beck Hill, who is co-hosting this week, uh, chat about Joan's new book, Homegrown. So due to the nature of what that book is about, just a little forewarning that there is uh, obviously lots of discussion in this episode about uh, domestic violence, uh, sexual violence, terrorism uh, and lots of that sort of thing. So just be aware of that before you continue listening to the episode. And with that being said, uh, into the studio, here is Robin and Beck and Joan. Are you crunched enough? Mm-hmm. Hello. Uh, we're joined by uh, Beck Hill, who's currently mm-hmm. eating a cheese straw unprofessionally, uh, as opposed to Josie Long, who normally unprofessionally eats an apple at this point. So I could just good. suck on the cheese straw and let it just go mushy in my mouth. But no, it's good because what happened last time, as we know, is you get a gurgly stomach if you don't I have do a cheese straw a immediately beforehand. So it's very <laughs> dangerous business. Um, Sometimes and- our stomachs talk to each other. 
It does. Do you know yeah. what? Today, there was a little bit where my stomach made a noise and I noticed you looked down and go, was that mine? Yeah. You know, there's a kind of ventriloquist dummy style mm. effect of that. That's... Uh, um, we're joined today by Joan Smith, who uh, author of Misogynies, uh, The Public Woman. And I, I was trying to remember the first novel of yours I read was a Faber and Faber one. Are they still screaming? Was that... Uh... Oh, why aren't they screaming? Yes, why aren't that's they one screaming? Of, one of my crime Which novels. I read when I was a, t- a teenager. Oh, yeah, really? I, yeah, I remember seeing it in a bookshop. And, and I was of that age where I just went, oh, Faber and Faber iconography. And it was beautiful. The, the image was very confronting on the front. Wonderful. And that was that was the first one of your, your uh, fiction uh, that I read. Today we're specifically going to talk... We We'll, perhaps if it's okay with you, talk a little bit about The Public Woman as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you've written a book which I, I think has been one of the uh, most revelatory books for me, certainly of this year, and, and it's uh, it's called Homegrown, How Domestic Violence Turns Men Into Terrorists. And it's just, it's painfully fascinating. And and, and, and I, I can't, you know, as, as I said to you before we came in here, it's one of those books that you start reading and then you get to a certain point, you think, I just need a little bit of a break from this because it's not, and I will mention for just, I know people, you know, prefer warnings for this, but it is obviously, it's about domestic violence and it is about acts of terror. And um, and so when, do, I mean, you've you've worked, you work with the, the um, Mayor of London, don't you, in, yes. in, in terms of uh, domestic violence and... and I mean, this this is even you say in this book that it still astounds you the amount of of domestic violence that continues to go on. It does. So back in 2012, I mean, having written about a lot of male violence throughout my career, um, starting with misogynies, um, I was asked by someone called Boris Johnson, um, (laughs) his administration, to go and chair the Violence Against Women and Girls Board at City Hall. And this is the the mayor in London is the police commissioner. So he's responsible for funding the Metropolitan Police, but also drawing up policy on things like domestic violence. And so I went and did that. I've done it since 2013. And so that has really brought me into contact with what the situation in London is. And it just absolutely amazes me how widespread violence against women is. So we have something like the police, the police in London, the Metropolitan Police, they record about 150,000 incidents of domestic violence every year in the city. And so through those meetings, I, I think I became super aware of, of of that. But I also started noticing something else, which is that in America, where they have lots and lots of mass shootings, which are not necessarily related to, to terrorism, in fact, a lot of them aren't, how often the perpetrators turned out to have a background of domestic violence mm. and how often they include a family member, a wife, a girlfriend, a mother among their victims. And then I started to notice the same thing about, about terrorists. And I think one of the really striking ones to me was in 2016 when a man called Mohamed Lawej Boulel hired a, a lorry and drove it um, onto the pavement at yeah. the Promenade des Anglais in Nice and killed nearly 90 people and injured hundreds. And people said, oh, but, you know, he'd show no interest in religion, even though it was an, an Islamist attack. He'd show no interest in, in, in religion until about three months beforehand. But when you looked at his history, he was an incredibly violent domestic abuser who'd actually tormented his wife, his children and his mother-in-law for many years until his wife finally threw him out. And that that was when he started going to a mosque and he started saying that he was a supporter of Islamic State and all of that. And I thought, wow, there's something going on here. And then, then of course, we had 2017 when we had four fatal terrorist attacks in England and all of the six perpetrators had a history of domestic abuse. And I thought, gosh, there's really something going on here. Is mm. uh, I mean, 
what I, I, I kept thinking about so many different events I've been to and speech I've been to where so often it's, it's explained that acts of terror and brutality are due to radicalisation within yeah. a religion. And it is, I would consider, far more disturbing to say that we can't pass the buck and say it happened because of that imam, it happened mm, because of that, yeah. to actually say this is something that is, as, as you said, you know, in, the, in this book you cover uh, pretty much every, every, I think, major terrorist uh, attack or, 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 or mass murder that has been covered by the, the British news, certainly. Um, and it seems that this is, yes, it becomes the alibi, it becomes this idea mm. of turning it into, oh, now somehow I've, I've turned my violence into an honourable action. But that, to me, I wondered what the feedback has been and what your view of, of, of that disturbing thing, which says, this is, you know, the, 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 this is a thing that men have to look within themselves and, and, and look within our community, you know, it, it, to understand what is going on. Oh, I came to the conclusion that we've got this the wrong way around, that that the people who study terrorism and, and know about terrorism, they think precisely it's a problem of radicalisation. So it's as if these men are kind of, and they nearly always are men, as if they're leading perfectly normal lives. And then one day they go online and they find some neo-Nazi propaganda or or they find a you know podcast by a right-wing extremist or they find a, you know a, an ISIS beheading video, something like that. And suddenly they become violent. And I mm. think it's the other way around. I think we're dealing with a cohort of violent men who at some point actually use these ideologies, whether they're secular, right-wing or, or religious, because I think they, they are all ideologies, basically. They use those as a, as a justification for, pre, for pre, pre-existing violence. And you see, that, that means I'm coming at this and looking at it through a lens of male violence, whereas most of the people who work on terrorism look on it as radicalisation and ideology. And if you look at it from where I start out, you, you actually draw very different conclusions because you actually think these, these men, they like the ideology because the ideology is violent, so it's almost tailor-made for them. So that tells us something about the kind of people who are likely to be radicalised. And what's been really interesting is I thought this book would be really controversial and what's happened is people getting in touch, experts on terrorism getting in touch, you know, university departments, people like that, and saying, we've been studying terrorism for years and years and we never noticed this. And mm. I think it's because it's so taken for granted that terrorism is mostly carried out by men that very few people have actually stopped and said, but what does that tell us? Why, mm. why should that be? Um, so it's, it's actually been quite, quite, a, quite a strange experience. And that includes the police, of course, because that was one of my starting points, was raising this with one of the most... I was in a meeting at City Hall at the end of 2017, and I raised it with one of the most senior police officers in the country. And I said... They were talking about 2017, and I said, have you noticed that all of the men involved in the attacks in London and Manchester had a history of domestic abuse? And he said, no. And then he said... I've been sitting in meetings with experts on terrorism for 20 years and nobody ever pointed that out before. So he went back to Scotland Yard and said, because Scotland Yard maintained the database of convicted and dead terrorists, so they've got the history. So he went back and said, what data do we have on their family backgrounds and whether they've been involved in violence against the family? And the answer was none because nobody ever asked before. Now, I don't think that's true. I think the data is there, but they haven't understood its significance. Mm. What's changed, or maybe not changed, um, in in terms of the understanding of that violence from men? I mean, towards the end of the book, you talk about when when I forget which police officer it is says, you know, when they go into a violent home and they look towards the three year old boy there, and they realise kind of when they will see that boy again in ten, eleven, twelve years time. And there are also cases in this book where you talk about. 
children who fight against the abusive father yes. and then at a point realise that the only way to stop their violence, the violence they're facing, is to then turn it round. Yes. And that, that, that's where the, the attack of women starts. Well, I th- yes, so I think there's, there's quite a lot of evidence now and the police are beginning to understand this. So in, in London, the Metropolitan Police, a couple of years ago, they appointed, they appointed their first head of safeguarding um, who's a commander at Scotland Yard, which is very, very senior rank. And he's very aware of this, that um, and that, that these boys are growing up in a violent atmosphere. They're hypervigilant, so they see threats coming from all around. It's a very common trait of abused children to be hypervigilant. Um, and you're right that at some point, you know, Yusuf Zagba, who's the youngest of the London Bridge terrorists, and that awful attack where they drove a van onto the pavement and then jumped out and started hacking at people. Um, he'd grown up in Morocco with Italian mother, um, Moroccan father, and to begin with, he actually defended his wife and his his sorry his mother and sister. But there's a point where the boy is getting bigger, and it becomes too dangerous to identify with the father, and so they internalise the father's misogyny. They start being abusive in, to women in turn, and that comes up over and over again. It comes comes up in families where boys join gangs too. You see you see these patterns repeated. Um, and and I think that there's a there's, there's an understanding of that at quite a high level in the police in this country. Um, whether it's filtered down to the cops who actually go and knock on the door, you know, at eleven o'clock on a Saturday night when the neighbours have called nine nine nine, is 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 a different matter. You also there's a, a chapter where you look at some of the what's called the insul, you know, movement. Mm. And again, this seems to have. Very broad thing about the nature of society, and you know that people would like to believe that there is an equality now, and we see a kind of a backlash. I think now where the loss of privilege mm. is is you know men hold their arms up and 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 you know kick off about that, but that idea where a young man can and it's not merely saying that he can't have sex with women; it's that he believes that he has the right to have. I fancy you. Therefore, it is my right. Now, that seems an incredible position. You know, the 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 guy from Toronto, he comes came from a privileged background. Mm. Uh, you know, all of those different kind of you know levels of of educational possibilities and all of those things, and yet he could have a very very deep held misogyny. Yes, and and uh, I mean the ins- the insults. There are some of them in my book, and 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 they are they are fascinating in a horrible kind of a way because they're a, they're a kind of very pure form of misogyny it's it's a it's an expression of a kind of attitude that you wouldn't expect to find in the 21st century but Elliot Roger who's the Isla Vista killer um, he he was a, a university student and he left behind a video and a, a you know a kind of manifesto and in inverted commas absolutely railing against women and particularly blondes because he said he'd stand at parties and watch blonde women talking to other men and he couldn't understand why they wouldn't sleep with him. And he got so angry about it that he, he got a gun in a car, he went out and shot people, he drove the car at people. I mean, a real kind of murderous rampage. And he's become a hero in certain quarters of the internet. You know, there, there are people, he, he referred himself to himself as something like the perfect gentleman. And, mm. uh, you know, he has fans who, who kind of talk about him as the perfect gentleman, Elliot Roger, and you know they call him Saint Elliot, and so on. I mean, there's a really profound vein of misogyny there, which is, has only really been uncovered in in, in quite recent uh, times. And uh, in August, there was a 
an absolutely horrible mass murder in um, Dayton, Ohio. And the man who did that, um, he killed nine people outside a bar, uh, including his own sister. You know, very, very common pattern that. But when when you looked at, at him, he had actually been suspended from high school because he'd written a, a list of girls he wanted to rape and boys he wanted to kill on a toilet wall. He was suspended from school. And then if, and, and the, the police actually, the FBI actually contacted some of the girls on the list and said, you're in danger from this man. A few months later, he returned to the school mm. as if nothing had happened. He well, he wasn't ever charged. Nobody explained what had happened. The records have been expunged, so we don't know why. It's so almost later, like it's assumed it's easier to try and protect the women than it is to just deal with the problem. Because that's the privilege that they're given is, oh, yeah, that's fine, though, you'll learn. Let's just make sure those girls are safe. But, you know, yes. rather than actually tackling the issue. And the, and the problem with that, which comes up over and over again, is that if you don't actually take these men to court and try them and convict them and they don't have convictions in the States, there's nothing to, to stop them going and buying an AR-15 assault weapon and mm. actually opening fire, which, which is what they do. So, so the failure to actually deal with that misogyny um, when when it when it arises at an early stage is catastrophic. So, it, it, I mean, in in the book, there's quite a few cases of people who have committed acts which you would. I mean, there's there's one guy who I, I hope I get. He, he murdered two of his wives. I think there's certainly one wife he threw off a balcony, and that was found as self defence. He yeah. was given. He'd been involved in the murder of a previous partner, and he was still free within months, and he killed again. And then there's these stories as well. That's not the only story that you just mentioned in terms of people who at school uh, were doing acts of extreme violence. That yes. it, You would certainly hope if it happened on a street corner, if it was observed in any way, that would be... and uh, You would be arrested for that. You would be trying... And that's what this casual... I mean, is that what there is? Is it because somehow we're still not taking this seriously, that still this kind of... This brutality towards women, this brutality towards girls in schools, all of those things, somewhere in the mind of society is still, this is part of the rough and tumble. I know that sounds a hideous thing to say, but it seems to me that... I think that's exactly right, I'm afraid. And there are guys in, in the book who, whose, whose history is just astonishing. So there's a man called Robert Deere Jr. who attacked a Planned Parenthood um, clinic in Colorado Springs. And I think 2015 was it anyway um he killed three people uh, including a police officer and injured several more but his his previous history was that he'd been married three times two of his wives reported him to the police for domestic violence a neighbor rang 911 um because she found him peering through her bedroom window one night he was he was a voyeur and then a fourth woman went to the police and said he'd followed her home from work and raped her. The only conviction he ever had was for driving offences, for driving without wearing a seatbelt. And you think, how did people not actually see how dangerous this man was and convict him? Because because he wasn't convicted, again, he could buy, he could buy guns. But the same thing hap- happens here, that young men, you know, show very, very damaged behaviour, very damaged attitudes to women... Um, a readiness to use violence against girlfriends and so on. And somehow they don't end up being convicted. And, and of course, we your point about the man who killed three wives and or partners in the end, we don't have a domestic offenders register in this country, so we do have a sex offenders register. So if you're convicted of indecent assault or rape, you actually go on the, on the register, you're obliged to tell the police where you live, if you move, so that they, they, they know something about you, can keep an eye on you. We don't have a, a domestic violence offenders register. And when I I've raised that with the police. They've said, oh, but there are so many of them. 
But what that means, and at City Hall in London, where we get raw data from the Metropolitan Police, um, what we can see and what the police can see is that a man being convicted, getting maybe a six-month sentence for, for violence against the family, he comes out, he moves two boroughs across, he finds a new girlfriend, forms a relationship. She has absolutely no idea of his history. Same thing happens again. You know, there are men who've abused four and five partners serially. And unless one of those women starts to worry and uses Claire's law, because you can go to the police and ask her if there are previous convictions, um, she won't know anything about that history. It's it's really scary. You also mentioned near the beginning of the book about the idea of whether misogyny should be placed in with other groups of kind of racial hate, mm. etc., uh, um, and the debate around that. Could you just say a, a little bit more about what, what the thinking is there and also what the debate against that? Huh. So... <laughs> There are there are aggravated defences. So you know, if racism is, racism is involved, or um, religion, or it's it's an offence against um, a trans person, then that's an aggregated offence. It's a hate crime, basically. Amazingly, misogyny is not a hate crime, and um, I know that some women don't think it should be because they think it would just raise the bar even higher. That you know, there is a reluctance to to prosecute um, violence against women generally, and a feeling that it's all too difficult. And if you then actually introduce the test as to whether it's also um, a hate crime, then then you just wouldn't get any more prosecutions. But it just seems to me weird that given that we're slightly over half the population, that misogyny isn't a hate crime. And again, um, one of the answers you get from the police when you ask why it isn't is, but there's so much of it. Mm. Um, which is a bit like I was, I was doing an event with the MP Jess Phillips a few weeks ago and we were talking about this and she said, that's a bit like saying oh, God, there's all these people with diabetes. There's no point in tracking them because there's just too many of them. I mean, that's mm. a really, really terrible argument. But that's where we are. I still find it... I suppose I'd be naive enough within whatever bubble I was living in to when social media seemed to be so much of a kind of something we've talked about on this show many times before very often with Josie because Josie was someone who I was amazed at the amount of abuse she got from a very very early time of being mm. on the internet and that was what what I'm still trying to get some kind of understanding for is I remember Jermaine Greer once said something which disturbed me a great deal she said what women need to remember is that men hate them and that moment of trying to understand how in this in this culture that we live in, in this island that is still this it really does seem that that level of hatred that level of of, of abuse yes yeah, so i i think the actual quote is something like women have no idea how much men hate them and i think social media has certainly <laughs> given somewhat of an idea yes. yeah yeah mm. and it's um you know, talking to women MPs, um, the level of abuse and threat that they get is absolutely devastating. I've got a friend in the north of England who's an MP, um, and uh, you know the, the the threats she's the death threats that she has had, um, they make your hair stand on end. And they you know, and this, these are people who actually go back at the weekend. They do their surgeries. Um, she was saying to me that you know she. She used to go out and say hello to people when she was doing her shopping and now she doesn't wear any makeup. She pulls a baseball cap down on, over her hair because mm. she's worried about being recognised in public. I mean, I don't think that the general public realises how how women's, women in the public eye, how their lives are actually distorted by this, 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 this degree of hatred. I mean, I assume it was always there, but I think that the problem is that um, 
people who had these attitudes, because some women are misogynist as well, obviously, I think that mostly they had, you know, on the whole, they had the sense to keep quiet about it. Now you can go on the internet and you can find other people saying even worse things. And I think it legitimizes it. You know, it makes you feel like you're part of some horrible community and, and, and that it's okay to behave like this. Well, I think also part of the problem is uh, the word hate is so simplistic that there's a lot of people out there, there's probably even people listening to this going, well, that's not true, I don't hate women. But it's not It's not as black and white as just, just oh, I hate that, I'm angry all the time. It's a, it's a disrespect. Yes. And it's a, um, and in so many cases, it's a disrespect that, that often comes from, and, and as you say, a lot of women can be misogynistic as well, and I think it comes from uh, many times it's people who just aren't aware that they disrespect mm. women because we've been brought up within this system that implicitly disrespects women and doesn't see them as equals. And then then what happens is then when people start to see the shift where women start to behave like equal humans, then the hatred and the anger and stuff comes yeah. out because it doesn't feel right. It feels like an attack rather than a than a, a, an equal footing. Yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just, it's... Uh, it is one of those things that people just sort of, sort of uh, shrug off because they think, well, you know, yeah, but I'm not part of the problem, and we're kind of all part of the problem to varying degrees. Yeah, yeah, I, I think mean, like it goes back to what we were saying about insults. You know that I think the status quo is very powerful. And if you were a boy growing up at a time when it was just assumed that certain jobs were done by men, or that you know men had the first dibs on on various things, and then suddenly that's overturned, instead of thinking, well, you know, fair enough, you know, we're moving towards a more equal situation, which will be better for all of us in 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 the in the end. There are some men who feel feel really outraged, and you can see this right across a spectrum of political views. So in the States, you know, the, the same weekend there was the attack I was talking about in Ohio. There was another one in Texas where the attacker targeted Mexicans. He, he drove hundreds of miles to a town where, the, where there's a lot of a large Mexican population specifically to attack them. And I think it's the same sense of um, entitled, outraged entitlement, you know, that mm. they and whether they are, you know, a different race or uh, immigrants or women or whatever, th there's these people who are taking what I should have. And I think that's the really frightening thing about it and um, you know it, it involves dehumanization it means you no longer see the the objects of your and it's not just hate it's it's envy it's fear it's a mm. whole you're right it's a whole stew of emotions but it's frightening because it means you de dehumanize all of those people you see them as rivals you see them as people that are taking what you should rightfully have and for a small minority of people that ends up in violence Mm. That case is uh, that that I think also highlights the other the the partisanship in terms of uh, when people get uh, excited about those kind of incidents, and I think excited is the right word. Where you see, sir, with the people were tremendously excited at the idea that that was going to be an act committed by a Mexican, and then when they found out it was quite the opposite, it was uh, immediately in the same way. That an odd thing recently, where that uh, that French child who was um, thrown off a balcony at the, at the Tate Modern, and there was I noticed that certain people you see pop up, and they can't wait to say that this was done by uh, an illegal immigrant or an immigrant, or and then once it's not, mm. they have no, and that to me that I. Idea. And again, going back to your book, which is, it's as long as we, for for some people, as long as we can turn these acts of, of terror and say that this justifies our religious hate, mm. it's fine. 
And we we are always, you know, for many people, far less interested in the ones that turn out to be, you know, committed by a a white European, whatever it might be. You you actually see that moment of almost, you know, priapic kind of joy disappear. How, I mean, what, what, and I know this is not up to you, but what do you see as the ways that people can individually are the systems, are the things that we can do to try and confront this as mm. individuals, to try and understand? I mean, because obviously this needs to be reported a lot more. This is what I think mm. so much of this book. I thought if that was out there, if we had, you know, if every single day, because there are acts of domestic violence going on, every, you know, if every single day there was something in a newspaper, there was something in a reason, you know, then people, surely once you give people enough information, they go, this isn't right. There's enough people who... Is that true? Because every year, the Office for National Statistics, they do crime surveys. And um, the most recent one, 1.2 million women report having suffered some form of domestic abuse in in the last 12 months. And that means most of us know somebody who's in that situation. Um, I, I still don't, I still think there is a tendency to play it down. And you know, it's it's a what years ago when I was a child, people used to say, yeah, you know, but it's what it's six of one and half a dozen of the other, isn't it? Or um, I remember, you know, my parents' generation, they they people would talk about a man beating up his wife, and they'd say, but you know, she does try and wear the trousers <laughs> in that house. Um, I.e., she's a bit assertive. Um, so I think there's there's a huge history of playing this down that that we 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 really have to get past. One of the reasons I wrote the book is is because I mean basically I would like to, I would like to find some way of saving lives and one way of doing that is to say that these men are much more dangerous than we've ever thought and that when MI5 and the anti-terror counterterrorism police are looking at suspects who've come to their attention whether whether it's right-wing radicalization or islamism that they should be looking for the ones who are already violent at home and actually saying that these are the ones we we need we need to concentrate on but there's something wider than that about um, why we have so few prosecutions for domestic violence. Um, and, um, you know, supporting... the There's a huge thing about supporting women. So at the moment, um, Theresa May drove me mad, both as Home Secretary and Prime Minister, because she kept saying that domestic violence was her passion and that she wanted to do something about it. And she kept changing the law, which was very good, making coercive control a criminal offence in December 2015, bringing in domestic violence prevention orders, all of those things. She also cut the police, police numbers, and there are just the not there aren't resources. So who who is going to investigate all these crimes if you cut police numbers? Um, and and we know in London, the last time I looked at the figures, two thirds of women who were asking for a refuge place so that they and their children could be in a safe place and leave a violent partner are being turned away because the money isn't there to support them. And so it actually has to rise up our priorities. I would like a situation where anybody who's going knocking on doors on a Saturday afternoon, which I've done many times for the Labour Party, um, and though I'm not a member anymore, but I would like people to come to the door and say, but what are you going to do about supporting women getting away from violent men? What are you going to do to make sure that the police take this crime seriously? And it's all the time, all the many years that I've been canvassing for in, 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 in elections, nobody's ever raised this as a subject. It just isn't there as a political issue. Sorry, it's very frustrating. No, well, it's, it's a shame that tabloids like to focus so much on things that aren't really 
generally massive threats and and sensationalize them. If they want to concentrate on something. I mean, if you had every time there was a, a, a mass shooting or, or a terrorism event or anything like that, if they immediately led with rather than the background or faith or whatever of that, if they then said instead such and such with a history of, yes. you know, domestic violence abuse. It it feels like at the moment, as you were saying, that people aren't realising it's as big a threat as it is. As arguably 50% of the population don't have to worry about being the victims. I do understand that men are targeted but with domestic violence as well, but generally it tends to be towards women. So if, you know, 50% of the population feel vaguely pretty safe. I mean, oh, it's bad, it's bad, but it's not going to affect me personally. But if then instead everyone went, oh, but I could be out shopping and I could get, you know, hit by someone driving a lorry onto the, you know, onto the pavement because that person had a history of domestic... Then people might start going, oh, we should probably pay more attention to this. Exactly, exactly. In the same way that people talk about you know, psychopaths and, and uh, um, violence against animals, you know, that yes. kind of thing. It's Yes, people see that as a prediction, yes. but they don't see this. And yeah. um, when I was looking at the 2017 attacks, if you take this, um, if, if you take the, the man who did the Westminster Bridge attack, um, Khalid Massoud, who was a Muslim convert, and you look at Darren Osborne, who did the Finsbury Park mosque attack, who drove a, um, um, deliberately drove a van into worshippers leaving the mosque in Finsbury Park. And, you know, they appear to be ideologically opposites. But what's incredibly similar about them is that they're both career criminals. So um, Khalid Massoud had, I think he only had about seven convictions for very violent crime, but they were very violent. Anyway. <laughs> um, and and his his first partner left him um, because, he was, because he was abusive. His second wife, who married his, well, she was first wife, second partner she married him after he converted to Islam in prison and um, after three months she ran away from him because he was so violent he then had a, married for a second time and that marriage had broken down again before the, the Westminster Bridge attack and then, um, and then Darren Osborne um, he had 102 criminal convictions, including for intimate partner violence, mm-hmm. and he was an alcoholic. So, you know, the very, very similar backgrounds. And what happened to him was his, his partner finally threw him out six weeks before the attack. He went online and started looking at um, right-wing um, ideologues and right-wing propaganda, hired a van, drove to London, said he wanted to kill Muslims. But they follow a pattern in my book, which I think is incredibly important, which is a number of these men actually commit attacks on the public after their partner has thrown them out. And I think that there, there is a kind of man who terrorises his family for years quietly at home. Sometimes it comes to the attention of the authorities, mostly not. And then one day, somehow, the family gets together and they throw him out. And the narcissistic wound is so enormous that there's a rage there. They look mm. for an ideology which will say this rage is perfectly normal and natural. And they turn it out against members of the public. So that's of the six... Uh, men involved in terrorist attacks uh, in 2017, which killed more than 30 people. Three of them, so that's half, had recently suffered relationship breakdown. It's a really interesting pattern, and I don't think I don't think it's really been noticed. Hmm. You also, sorry, I was just going to say that it feels like just identifying the problem and telling people is such an it's such a big step towards that though. And while it might feel overwhelmingly like a a problem that can't be fixed. Right now, it feels like just the fact that you're writing about this and people hearing about this and talking about this, I mean, that's it's already heading in a much better direction than it was before. 
Well, I hope it is. And I think that the fact that the fact that the book is having this impact is really strange because on the one hand, I did think it would be controversial, um, as I said. But in fact, what people are saying more, much more is, oh, God, this is actually obvious when you think about it, uh, which I think it is. I've thought this for years. Mm. Um, so maybe I sometimes think my, my role in this world is to state the obvious periodically. <laughs> Every few years I have to write a book and state the obvious. And then people go, oh, well, it's like when I wrote Misogynies. When I was writing Misogynies, which is more than 30 years ago now, um, and people asked me what I was doing because I'd written several books. And I'd say, oh, I'm writing a book about misogyny. People actually said, oh, what's that? And then when the book came out, that really was controversial and people got very cross about it. And then, if, you know, it's, it's, it's always been in print. And I still get messages from people who are reading it now. And so sometimes... There, there just has to be somebody who points something out. And I think, you you know, you're right. I, th I think it is possible to change things. But I do think that actually getting, the, you know, the, the, there are very good MPs like Jess Phillips who get this. Um, there are a lot of MPs who it's nothing like as important as, as the other issues they're dealing with every every day. And, and one of the big frustrations for me, um, you know, there's a, there's a domestic violence bill which is supposed to be going through Parliament at the moment. Everything gets shoved aside by Brexit. And it's mm. just really hard getting politicians to concentrate on anything other than uh, where this mess this mess we're in. And it's incredibly frustrating because it seems to me that this is one of the biggest problems that we have is this... And we know that if if you don't get a woman and her children to a safe place, that those children are going to grow up. And it's not inevitable that if you've witnessed domestic abuse that you will end up being an abuser or in an, abused relation, an abusing relationship yourself. But there is quite a lot of evidence of the damage it does to those kids. So we're actually preparing another generation to go through this again as adults. You know, it's, it's incredibly important to intervene. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about a thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. That's one of the, the most difficult psychological philosophical, that, that line where the victim becomes the perpetrator, that yes. point of... Uh, and, and that, again, I think makes people uneasy, doesn't it? Because it's very yes. easy to say you are the villain and it's very easy to say you are, you are the victim child. And then that, that hazy area in between where there, there is that transfer, as we were talking about before, you know, th those young people who see violence and eventually turn to violence, having initially spent perhaps years as children trying to defend yes. their mother. Well, I was the first chapter of the book is about the Kouachi brothers who carried out the Charlie Hebdo massacre in Paris, which was absolutely horrifying. You know, I'm a journalist, and the idea of sitting in a in a room, you know, having an edit editorial conference, and two men walk in with weapons and start picking people off one by one because it was a kind of execution. They decided in advance which which people, which main, it was mainly the men who they wanted to kill. Absolutely horrifying. But when I when I the reason I devoted the first chapter to it is because these were boys who came from they, they, they came from a very poor part of northern Paris. Um, their parents had, were, had come to France from Algeria and the father was very violent. There were four children 
Um, the father then dies of cancer. So you've got domestic violence followed by bereavement. The mother is unable to cope and eventually, and is very poor, eventually asks the state if, she, if they can take the two eldest boys into, into care temporarily while she gets back on her feet. The state, the French state, takes those boys and instead of fostering them somewhere in Paris, actually moves them to an orphanage 300 miles south of Paris in a village in a very, very white part of, of, mm. of France where obviously they're going to feel uneasy. Um, the mother is then found dead, possibly from a deliberate overdose. It's a drug overdose. We don't know if it was deliberate. So the, all four children are, are orphaned. And they grow, the two boys grow up in, in the orphanage. As soon as they can, they go back to Paris. And one of the things I was talking about before is hypervigilance. So there's some interesting brain research in the States on, on, the, on the impact of abuse on the brain. And one of the things it does is, is, is this thing called hypervigilance, where it reduces your ability to make a good estimate of threat. So you feel as if you're under threat all the time, which you were in the home, obviously. And I was thinking about this. And so they, these two boys, aged 18 and 20, they go back to Paris. One of them, the younger one, ends up homeless, sleeping on the streets and so on. They, they end up going to a mosque where there's a kind of fiery young imam. And, of course, if you're a hypervigilant boy and somebody tells you, yes, you're absolutely right, they are out to get you, they do hate you because of your religion... It's, they're actually completely susceptible to that kind of to that that kind of radicalization, and that's what happened. And you know, there's a long period where the younger boy, particularly, is is being persuaded to go and fight in in Iraq or Syria. Um, and, and I think it was Iraq. And but you know, he keeps saying to this imam, "But you know, I'd rather stay here and attack." Jewish premises, Jewish shops and so on. And you can see there's a kind of hatred there which is festering. And then all these years later, he and his brother carry out this terrible attack which leaves 12 people dead, including a young Muslim police officer. And it's not to say that you're excusing them in any way. What you're saying is that there's a number of... Um, elements in their history which make them more susceptible to radicalization, and that we need to identify those steps and we need to do something about them so, so that it doesn't end up in, in, in a massacre. And that's not excusing them at all. I think what they did was absolutely hideous. But I wish somebody had dealt with them more sensitively when they were children. Yeah, there is that real problem, isn't there, which is uh, that even to, to try and understand is seen as trying to excuse. And there's, I would highly recommend, there's a, you may well have read it, Erwin James's book, Redeemable. Uh, he, he's now the editor of Inside Times, the prison newspaper, but a, a different situation, but still one where he grew up in a brutal yeah. situation. He got to a level of dehumanisation, which meant that life meant far less. And I felt that that narrative of one individual was, it just, you know, it helps you understand. It doesn't mean that you go, oh, well, that's, oh, I understand now why the, the murder happened. That's all fine. It's all fine. It doesn't make that act fine. No. But it makes that the comprehension of. I suppose that's that's maybe one of the when we were talking before. One of the biggest problems is we still want to live in. Always think of that moment in the in the road. Are we still? Is it? Uh, are we still the goodies? Are we still the? You know, <laughs> are we the good guys? Are we still the good guys? I'm not one of the bad guys, am I? And there's no in between, is there? You're yes. good guy or bad guy. You're with mm. us or against us. And it's very striking that. Um, Nazir Afsal, who was the um, chief crime prosecutor in the northwest of England, who I interviewed for the book and who's been very supportive. I mean, he says that 
all of these boys who have this background, they're susceptible to for grooming for gangs, grooming for sexual exploitation, grooming for radicalization. Um, the damage is there, and the direction in which they go is almost, you know, which group of baddies they fall they fall into into, into contact with. Um, but as I said earlier, I think that's much more in, understood in terms of, of the gang because what gangs are effectively is an alternative family. So a boy who's living in a violent household, a poor household, there may be substance abuse, absent father, maybe the father's in prison or, or isn't there for some reason, um, and they feel under threat. And, and the gang is a peer group that actually steps in. And, you know, it's ironic that boys go into gangs for for companionship and, and for protection, and it actually exposes them just to higher levels of violence and the possibility of, of, of prison sentences. And weirdly, one of the organisations that understood this is ISIS. Um, there is, you know, they had a very sophisticated um, media operation based in, in Dabiq, um, in Syria, and um, there is some evidence that they actually went, had people going online looking for boys who were posting stuff about their gang background and how angry they were and, and how unhappy they were, and actually contacting them and said, Come and join us, come to Raqqa. And one of, one of, and, and misogyny was at the heart of that because, you know, one of the offers was, Come to, come to join Islamic State and you can have sex slaves. Well, you're right. We, we've run out of time, but you do that. That's a very interesting chapter as well, where you talk about three of the teenage girls who uh, radicalised, moved, and, and tell part of that. But we won't say any more because that means there's enough left that people have to buy this book. <laughs> mm. And uh, it's uh, yeah. I, I, as I said, I found it revelatory. It's uh, homegrown by Joan Smith. Joan, thank you very much for. We didn't get a chance to talk about the Public Woman as well, which <laughs> I know is a book from a few years back, which which I also think is a uh, another fascinating book and 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 well worth everyone listening reading. Uh, Beck, I presume you will be. If people can go to your website, can't they, to find out what you're up to? Yep, yeah, just beckhillcomedian.com. And, uh, Joan, is there anywhere people can keep up with uh, in terms of journalism, knowing what, what you're up to and what you're I doing? I tend to post everything on Twitter that I'm doing. Paul Blonde, go there yes. and you will uh, you will find uh, Joan. So f- follow that. Uh, thanks very much for listening and uh, we hope you'll listen again. Thank you very much for listening. We hope to see you at one of our Book Shambles events coming up in the next couple of weeks. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles to support the show. Or you can support us just by uh, sharing the, the episodes and the podcast on social media, uh, subscribing on iTunes, or iTunes doesn't exist anymore, does it? Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe to it. Our five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help us out as well. Thanks once again for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Until then, enjoy your week, be good to each other, and bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.